Let's open the Word of God, please, to Acts 25. And Mary works hard. She's a hard worker at the store, and I know she'd like to be here more often than she's able to be, just because she's got to work. I, when I was a sophomore in high school, my parents bought a business, and I found out that I was going to be working 364 days a year at my parents' business, literally. <laughs> Uh, we got all day Christmas off, whether we deserved it or not. That's, <laughs> so I had to stop going to church in my, halfway through my sophomore year. And, uh, I'm a slight computer issue here. Okay. Operator error. X chapter 25, everybody there? Okay, uh, let me just be brutally honest with you. There are two or three topics in the Bible uh, in my sin nature that I really don't like uh, because they are painful for me to think about, they're painful for me to teach about, and they're difficult for me to actually apply and do in my personal life. And today we run head-on to one of those topics. It's called Waiting. And we're going to think about waiting God's way as we look at some principles from Acts 25. But waiting is something I don't like to do, and I'm pretty sure most of you aren't crazy about it either. But that's good. It's not good that we're not as patient as we should be most of the time, but it's good because God's Word deals with even these kind of practical issues. And as I say, we're going to get some wisdom from the word this morning as we read about Paul's trials and his patience and his awaiting God's way as God works out a myriad of details to get him from Israel to Rome. And we're going to continue our study in the book of Acts. Uh, but today we're going to add a new uh, member to our collage of heroes. This is uh, Tom Rickert, Sergeant First Class, and he is Ray's... Uh, Bigger brother, big brother, younger brother. Yeah, so we put him on the collage there, kind of uh, right center there with our other guys. So as is our custom, let's pray uh, for teachability and also for troops, peace officers, and firefighters. And uh, Danny, pray for us in that direction, would you? Well, you know, Danny is a strong man with a beautiful heart. Love that guy. Um, there's nothing funny about waiting, so I am not going to uh, have a drawn-out comedic top five list to get you going, but I will show you one cartoon. Uh, this is a, a lady who just got to the doctor's office, and she's looking at another patient who's been waiting probably for a while, who looks kind of tired of waiting, and uh, she asks him, how long have you been waiting, sir? And he goes, how long have I been waiting? Well, when I got here, I didn't have a beard. So that was, that was a long wait. Yeah, let's look at Acts 25 today. We're going to see that Paul's years of waiting in Caesarea, including two different appearances before Governor Festus, were part of the providential process of God and his timing and his mechanisms by which Paul would arrive in Rome exactly on God's schedule. And among other things, while Paul's in Rome, uh, waiting again for an appeal, uh, 
for Caesar, he didn't do much except write four New Testament books. So that's pretty significant. So we're going to talk about waiting God's way as we see Paul uh, waiting. Uh, Paul's in Caesarea. Caesarea was the Roman capital of the region. We, of course, started in Jerusalem because uh, at the end of the third missionary journey, Paul brings a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem, and he's in the temple doing some things uh, uh, connected with uh, an assignment given to him by James and the church, and uh, a, a riot breaks out, and so he's taken to Caesarea. Uh, kind of the backstory is Paul's attacked by a mob in the temple area who wanted to beat him to death, but he was saved. His life was spared because some Roman soldiers who are in charge of peace and quiet in and around the occupied regions that they have conquered, including the Temple Mount, uh, took Paul into custody. And the next day, they thought, well, let's process, process this legal issue and find out what's, you know, who's right, who's wrong, and what we're going to do with Paul. So they take Paul to the quiet, solemn uh, tranquility of a formal Sanhedrin hearing, the Jewish Supreme Court, and guess what? As soon as Paul mentions the resurrection, a mini riot breaks out on the floor of the Sanhedrin. And so again, Roman soldiers have to take Paul and, and scurry him away from these enraged uh, religious fanatics who want to kill him. Uh, and then it gets worse. The colonel, the Roman colonel, gets wind of the fact there's a conspiracy by the big shot VIPs in the town to kill Paul. And so... The Roman uh, officer, using overwhelming force, takes Paul on horseback at night from Jerusalem to the Roman capital of the region, Caesarea. And uh, the Roman governor at that time, Felix, had a legal hearing. We saw that last week uh, under controlled conditions. And the Jewish high priest and some others were bringing some charges against Paul. The governor could see this was a facade for hatred and he kind of dismissed the hearing, the governor did, without making any decision, because this results in Paul having to wait. Just kind of our back story. Go back to verse 24 of the previous chapter. This is where we left off last time in this story, how God gets Paul from Jerusalem to Rome at Roman government expense. Look at chapter 24, verse 24. But some days after the legal hearing where the governor decided not to decide. Felix, the governor, with his wife, Drusilla, uh, who was a Jew, Jewish background, sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't see himself on trial as much as the gospel, and he used all these hearings as a chance to witness of his faith. But as Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, the governor became frightened and said, Get away. <laughs> Uh, it's too painful to contemplate. Uh, go away for the present, and when I find time, I'm going to make no decision on this too, but no decision on Christ is no decision. I'll summon you then. I actually jumped over this verse accidentally last week, verse 26. At the same time, too, the governor was hoping that money, and Mike, we'd call this a bribe, that money would be given him by Paul, therefore he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. One thing you can say about Felix was, Connie, he was curious about what Paul was preaching. He was curious. But there's a saying, curiosity killed the cat. 
There's also a saying that the early bird gets the worm. So maybe the worm should start sleeping in. That's just my opinion, you know. But this is where we left off last time. But after two years of this, where Paul's being held in protective custody in kind of a holding pattern around the airport, after two years had passed, Felix, Governor Felix, was succeeded. He was actually fired for being too violent against Jewish uh, rebellions, if you can believe that, by the upper level of the Roman government. Felix was succeeded by a new governor, Porcius Festus, and wishing to do the Jewish VIPs a favor, Felix, the outgoing governor, rather than letting Paul go, which he probably should have done, just left him stuck there, just left the problem for the next governor to deal with. Yeah, Caesarea is, we've shown you some pictures from the last Israel tour, but this is a, a helicopter shot of Caesarea today, and here's the theater where Paul will be uh, speaking next week. We'll see that. This is where the uh, governor's palace, governor's uh, offices would have been here. The great built that. And he actually built this man-made port here. which was quite remarkable. And it's a beautiful site and a spectacular site. Uh, but the big picture is we're going to get Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea all the way to Rome. God's promised that's going to happen. And uh, Paul's going to get there, uh, actually have an impact on the uh, secret service. We're told in Philippians 1 because of Paul being there and the gospel being discussed in the inner circles of the government, even the Praetorian Guard, the Secret Service, had heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's okay for God to sequence things differently than we expect because he knows what he's doing. Yeah, uh, notice verses, uh should say 24 through 27, it's kind of the backstory. Governor Felix uh, has been replaced by Governor Festus. Now let's look at verses 1 through 5. Uh, new Governor Festus makes a courtesy call from where his offices are, Caesarea, to Jerusalem. He's not necessarily aware of Paul's situation in any depth at this point. He's just trying to make points with the powerful people under his control in Jerusalem. Look at verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Festus then, having arrived in the province to take over as the new governor... Uh, Brant, three days later, went to Jerusalem from Caesarea, making sure that the powers that be in Jerusalem are on board with the Romans. It's very important for him. He wants to keep uh, peace and quiet. He's not interested in the gospel at all. He's uh, unaware or a rejecter of it. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews in Jerusalem, as soon as they see the new governor, bring charges against Paul and were urging him the governor, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him, the governor might have Paul, brought to Jerusalem. You know, hatred can be so persistent. And, you know, I've I've said many times, uh, you know, generosity gives you so much joy. Being a generous person, giving time and treasure to people, uh, you know, within your priorities and boundaries under the Lord is very freeing, gives you a lot of joy. Uh, but one thing we need to give away is the right to constantly feud and fuss and fight and whine and complain. Uh, we tend to be more generous. We've been forgiven so much. We need to be those who are quick to agape and uh, try to get as far away from feuds as possible. But these folks, these unregenerate religious folks that hate Paul, 
uh, have been sitting there for two years just waiting for the next governor to come in so they can kind of get the process going. They want to see Paul uh, liquidated as quickly as possible. Uh, interesting, Paul has been at a commission, quote-unquote, for two years in Caesarea, but the gospel continues. It's still a burr under the saddle of the Jewish leadership here, and they're wanting a man to notice. I stopped on purpose in the middle of verse 3. They're telling the governor, hey, bring Paul in here and let us process him, and everything will be fine, and it would be one less problem for you. But look at the middle of verse 3, Derek. The reason they're saying this is at the same time, the plan was they would set up an ambush to whack Paul on the way from Caesarea to Jerusalem. They don't want to give him a fair trial. And Paul knows he can't get a fair trial in that setting. And he's going to deal with that himself. But it's all a sham. Uh, just people who persistently hate um, are at best concealing who they are in Christ. And quite often it's a sign that there's something you know terminally wrong with their profession. Um, look at uh, verse 4. Festus then answered uh, that Paul was being kept in custody. He says, Rhea, he's fine, no problem, no rush. I'm not going to be in town much longer, and when we get, when I get back to Caesarea, we can adjudicate the case essentially immediately. Therefore, he said, let the influential men, you, you guys who are angry at Paul, and you may have some good reason, I don't know yet, uh, among you, uh, go back there to Caesarea with me when I return. If there's anything wrong about the man legally, let them prosecute him. That's fine. I don't mind, but I'm not going to go back, bring him, watch this. I'm just going to go back to Caesarea in a few days. Then you can follow me, and that's where it needs to be taken case to care of anyway. So we're seeing um, uh, the uh, the governor making this courtesy call, and wisely or just because he's all business saying, no, I'm not going to bring him to you. You come to me. Now look at verses 6 through 12. Back in Caesarea, Paul is going to make his case before Governor Festus. After the governor spent not more than eight or ten days, uh, it wasn't more than a day or two, among them in Jerusalem, he went down to Caesarea. <clears throat> and on the very next day, and obviously based on what he said, when I go back, you just go back with me. So all the opponents of Paul have followed the governor back to Caesarea. So the next full day he's in the office, he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought for this hearing where the Jewish religious leaders are going to charge Paul and hopefully liquidate him, have him assigned to capital punishment. After Paul arrived to the hearing, the legal process, the Jewish leaders who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. That's kind of intimidating. Uh, bringing many and serious charges against him, which they could not prove because they didn't actually happen. Now, what exactly did they say? We don't know. Go back to chapter 24, verses 5 and 6. Two years before this, the first time they tried to lie and get Paul convicted of a capital crime, they were saying things like this, chapter 24, verse 5 and 6, we found this man to be a real pest, which means a pestilence, a plague, uh, a curse, and a fellow who stirs up dissension. That would have been what the Roman governor didn't want to hear. We don't want dissension among the Jews. We want the Jews to be fat and happy and not... Uh, rattle the chains that the Romans have around them. He stirs up dissension, not just in Jerusalem, but among all the Jews throughout the world. He's a ringleader of a sect, this dangerous religious cult of the Nazarenes. Jesus was a carpenter in Nazareth. That was one of the titles that was assigned to Christians early on. And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. And it goes on. So that's what they said two years ago with their attorney. Now, 
Go back to chapter 25 and look at what Festus himself is going to say to Agrippa that the opponent said. Look at verse uh, 18 and 19. He's going to simplify what they said, but uh, here's what the governor later says about summing up the charges against Paul. Uh, When the accuser stood up, they began bringing charges against him, Paul, not of such crimes as I was expecting, murder and mayhem, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion, and primarily about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's the problem, and that's not really you know under the government purview, so we're not really not that worried about that kind of thing. So go back to uh, verse seven. So boom, uh, after Paul arrived, the Jews. Uh, had come down, who had come down from Jerusalem with the, the governor, or at this hearing, they surround Paul, and they're bringing many and serious charges, like he's a pest, like he desecrated the temple, like he's a religious, dangerous person. None of these things are true, of course. Those are the kind of things they're saying. And uh, they couldn't prove them because they weren't true, is the point. Verse 8, when Paul, his turn, said in his own defense, this is what he said, I have committed no offense against the law of Moses, or against the Jews generally, or against the temple, or against Caesar. I'm not anti, an anti-Roman zealot. Okay? But Festus, the governor, wishing to do the Jewish VIPs a favor, it's important that he has them on board with him to have a long governorship, right? Answered Paul and said, Hey, are you willing, Paul, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial on these charges? Just religious stuff anyway. I don't care that much about it. Let's just process it that way. And what does Paul say? As Christians, we just got to bend over backward to please everybody. And whenever they ask us, we got to do it every time, right? No. Uh, Paul knows he's a Roman citizen. He knows his rights as a Roman citizen. He insists that those rights be respected, right? And it's pretty important that I think Christians living in postmodern America need to be students of the Bible and the U.S. Constitution, and we better know what the Constitution says and be able to quote it just like we can quote uh, chapter and verse from the Bible because we may need that, right? Paul says, look, he knows he can't get a fair trial. He doesn't know about the ambush necessarily, but he knows he can't get a fair trial in Jerusalem. And Paul says, look, I'm standing here in the proper jurisdiction, now, I was arrested, ultimately, by Roman soldiers. I'm before Romans, uh, a, a Roman uh, tribunal, Caesar's tribunal, as a Roman citizen. This is where I should be tried. Tried. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews, as you should know. Uh, if then, watch this. First of all, an interesting thing he's implying here. If then I am a wrongdoer, a criminal, it would be a better translation, and have committed anything worthy of death. If I'm a criminal and I've committed a capital crime, Look what he says. I don't refuse to die. Paul is affirming the legitimacy of capital punishment in saying that. If he was an anti-capital punishment fanatic, he wouldn't have said something like that. If I'm a criminal and I've committed a capital crime, I don't refuse. I have no problem with capital punishment. I would deserve that. But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I don't trust them. They're liars. They want to kill me. I don't want to go to Jerusalem. I want to stay right here. In fact, I'm going over your head. I want to appeal to Caesar. Roman citizens had the right when they were facing a possible capital conviction to appeal directly to Rome, and that's what he does as a Roman citizen. He knows he's a citizen. He knows he has that right. He pushes that button right there. If he was ignorant of it, 
I wish I would be a nice guy and not cause any you know ripples anywhere. He might not have known that, might not have played that card. So, of course, we are to submit to human authority. But we only submit to human authority until or unless it's a sin to submit to human authority. If you're a German uh, uh, non-commissioned officer in 1939 and somebody, t- and you're a Christian, and somebody, the colonel says, go over there and shoot that Jewish lady, why? What'd she do? She's Jewish. Uh, no, sir, I can't do that, sir. You know, we don't obey human authority when it'd be sin to obey human authority. Uh, driving 55, you know, whatever, between the... Have you noticed when you go from here to Marlowe, uh, kind of once you cleared the Duncan City limits, I think it's 55, but then on either side of the Y, it goes down to 45. Now, I have, I'm a conscientious objector against that. I think that's a dumb rule. They don't need those extra signs. I don't want to slow down to 45, but I do it anyway. Okay? Always submit to human authority, legitimate human authority. If you're a school teacher, if you're uh, working at, uh, anybody have a job anymore? So many of them don't, you know? Uh, until or unless it's a sin. And, and Paul does that brilliantly, and he recognizes this is a ruse to get him to where they can murder him and say, no, I don't want to go. That is Roman citizen. I can, you know, change the venue and get as far away from Jerusalem as possible. So I appeal to Caesar. That's a big time play on his hand, on his part and very wise. Uh, verse 12. Then when Festus had conferred with his council, you know, his, uh, experts, legal experts answered, okay, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Go back to chapter 23, verse 11. Uh, we saw earlier during the Toward the end of the the third missionary journey, Paul had a desire to go to Rome. But sometimes our desires are not God's decree. But in fact, it turns out that uh, during a night when he would have been especially probably discouraged after, you know, the uh, problems in the Sanhedrin, verse 11 of chapter 23 says, But on the night immediately following all this dust up, the Lord... Jesus stood at Paul's side and said, Take courage, for as you've solemnly witnessed for my cause in Jerusalem, you must witness in Rome too. He knows he's going to Rome. Now, I'm sure he thought today, as a good man, Tom and I and Daryl, we're, we're men, okay? We have XY chromosomes. Uh, we are what our birth certificate says we are, okay? Proud of it, you know? Um and you know what? For most men, when we're pretty sure we know what God's will is, we assume we're supposed to do it like right now. And yesterday would have been better. But God's will is not just a what. It's a when and a how. And so when he gets direct revelation from the Lord Jesus, you're going to Rome, I'm sure he thought, this is going to be... And he didn't think this. He was too wise to think this. I would, if the Lord comes to me and says, hey, you're going to Dallas Seminary. You're going to be the president of Dallas Seminary. I say, hey, what time do we leave tomorrow, Lord? You know, let's go. You know, five years later, I'll be an old man five years from now. I don't want to do that, you know. So it's interesting that God's timing is different than, than ours, and we tend to want to second guess that, but we've got to train ourselves not to do that. So I go back to chapter 25, verse 12. You've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you're going. Paul's going to Rome. But uh, it's not like the waiting is over yet because it continues. Look at verse 13 through 22. Now we get another government official involved. This is uh, Paul interacting with King Agrippa. And this is 
King Agrippa is actually King Agrippa the second. You can look him up in your history books. Look at verses 13 through 19 first, and we'll say some things about it. Now, when several days had elapsed after that hearing, and he appeals to Caesar, and he's still sitting in his productive custody area, and nothing's happening, but they're working out the paperwork to make this thing happen. And now, when several days had elapsed after that, King Agrippa and Bernice, and this is his sister, not his wife, and there's a lot of rumors about that whole situation, but we'll let you read that in your Bible commentaries, arrived at Caesarea, which is where Paul is, where the governor is, where this hearing has just taken place, and paid their respects to Festus. They're just kind of introducing themselves to the new governor and paying their respects, which is a good thing to do. Agrippa's uh, a regional king over a small area, but still under the Roman governor, because the Roman Empire has conquered and occupies the whole region. <coughs> While they were spending many days there, that is Agrippa and his sister Bernice, spending many days there, Festus the governor laid Paul's case. They start talking, talking shop. Hey, how's it going? Governor, how do you like your new thing? Well, I like a lot of it. I really like the mansion complex we got. The White House is awesome, man. But I got this kind of strange situation when the Jews are arguing this guy named Paul and he's appealed to Caesar and, you know, I'm not sure how to make, fill out the paperwork. How, how do I explain what the charges are here? I need some help here. So they start talking shop and, uh, King Agrippa was a nominal Jew religiously, uh, but he would have known a lot more about Judaism and the kind of the infighting between the power base there, uh, than the new governor did. So, um, Festus laid Paul's case, verse 14, before the king, saying, uh, there's a man who was left prisoner by, by Felix. You know, Felix has just kind of gone away, and, and I've taken over, and Paul's been sitting there for two years, and Felix didn't process the case. And when I was at Jerusalem, just kind of a courtesy uh, visit to say hello to the power base in, in, the, in the Jewish capital, uh, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. And I answered them that it's not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face-to-face, due process of the law, and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I didn't delay. And the same full day after I got back to the city, we had a process, we had a legal hearing here. I did not delay, but on the next day, I took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes, murder, and mayhem as I expected, expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion. What do I do with that? You know, I'm a, I'm a Roman. I'm not a Jew. I don't care. Uh, and they were arguing about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul said was alive. You know, no, no big deal. Uh, wow. King Herod Agrippa II. And you know about King Herod the Great, uh, because he's the one who tried to kill the baby Jesus. He also built the temple complex. He built Caesarea, did a lot of building projects. But anyway, here's King Herod II. He's the son of King Herod Agrippa I. What is that important? That's important because in Acts 12, the first apostle who was martyred was James. And you know who martyred James? This guy's father. King Herod Agrippa uh, one. Uh, his father, King Herod Agrippa's grandfather, was uh, Aristobulus, and so Herod Agrippa's great grandfather was Herod the Great. So he's in the line of the Herodian uh, rulers that ruled under the Roman thumb. Here's the thing: he had a at this point in time, 
He was a rising political star. He's only about 30 years old. But his the only uh, real estate he actually controlled wasn't Jerusalem, and it wasn't Samaria, and it wasn't Galilee. It was these two little areas here, way north. However, he had a lot of clout, a lot of significance beyond the actual real estate he controlled because uh, he actually had grown up in Rome, and his best friend was the Emperor Claudius' son. So this guy, King Herod Agrippa II, had kind of become a mentee of Emperor Claudius, the, the emperor before Nero, who's, who's now uh, at this point the emperor. So he had a lot of connections with the Roman powers that be. He was a rising star in the system. He was eventually made governor of Galilee, but during this phase of his, his first uh, major political uh, position, he was given a couple of small, out-of-the-way provinces to control, but because of Jewish influence and because of some of his connections in Rome, he was given responsibility to maintain the temple in Jerusalem, and he had the final word on the choices on the high priests. Okay, Sanhedrin nominate this king would check off on it, advise and consent kind of thing. So he had a lot of clout way beyond uh, this relatively small, out-of-the-way real estate that he was the king of, but he's still outright by the governor. Uh, again, notice verse 19. Uh, Paul had clearly emphasized that it's all about his faith in Jesus and his belief that Christ died for our sins and rose again, and that's the reason the Jews hate him so much, and that's was picked up by the, the governor. So it is always about the resurrection and the cross. Paul makes it a point, it's not really about me. We said last week, based on our passage in chapter 24, you know, for, for Christians, you know, our lives really aren't just about us, they're really about him, right? So whatever was said, and Luke doesn't give us a great detail uh, what was said, but as the governor kind of replays what happened, he said, hey, basically they're arguing about a dead man that Paul said was alive. And that's kind of a garbled, misunderstood summary of what Paul would have said, that because Christ died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins, and through faith in him we can have eternal life. And he was not just crucified for our sins, he was resurrected. And I always say the resurrection of Christ validates the saving power of the death of Christ. If we say Jesus died for your sins, April, but he's dead, you can go to Thailand and see a place where they've got part of the collarbone of the Lord Buddha. You know, I've been there, you know. Uh, it's there, 24-7, Laura, you want to go? Chiang Mai, Thailand. They can actually go to a building that's got part of the collarbone of the Lord Buddha. But we've got an empty tomb because the cross is empty. It's finished. He's finished the work all the work necessary to get you from uh, Oklahoma to heaven, and really, much more importantly, to get me from Oklahoma to heaven, Jesus died and paid for on the cross, and then his resurrection is not just a historical fact, it validates the saving power of his work. Uh, Through faith in him, you can have the gift of eternal life. So Paul always makes that, and that's the same gospel they preach in New Mexico too, right, Pat? Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's a... It's not a franchise. It's all over the world. You're right. Okay. Let's keep reading. Pick up in verse 20 as Paul is uh, interacting with Agrippa. Uh, being at all, verse 20, the governor continues, being at a loss as to how to investigate such religious Jewish in-house matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem 
and their stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, when he appealed to Caesar, I ordered him to be kept in custody here in Caesarea until I send him to Caesar. I got to fill out all this paperwork, you know. Uh, you remember uh, when we were coming back from Pueblo last year, and some dumb dumb that would be me left his bag after we went through security for the third time uh, at the Dallas airport, and Ken and I had to get on a, a bus or something or train and go back another terminal and find the bag. Uh, I walked up to this big uh, uh, security guy, and he kind of said, Are you the guy that left the bag? I said, Yeah. He said, You have saved me so much paperwork. <laughs> Because I guess if you leave a bag that's got something in it, they gotta, you know, make sure it's not a bomb, so it takes them forever. So, you know, Fess is just, just saying, man, I, I've got so much paperwork to fill out. I have no idea, you know, how to make this look good when I send it to Caesar. I gotta make it look good. So when Caesar or his attorney reads it or whatever, it, it makes sense. Uh, so then Agrippa said, uh, to Festus, this is the local guy that was in charge of the temple, even though his jurisdiction was way north, uh, at that stage. Uh, I'd like to hear the man myself. I want to. I want to. I know a little bit about this Jewish infighting. I want to hear what he's talking about. I've kind of heard about this claim that this Yeshua was resurrected. I want to hear what he's going to say. Uh, and so the governor says, "Tomorrow, no waiting for you." <laughs> on this message on waiting, he said, "You will hear him." Boom, going to happen. So now, look at the next day. So on the next day, verse twenty-three, we're going to see. Festus, the governor, kicking off the hearing. Uh, this uh, fifth hearing we've had in just uh, four chapters that Paul's had to take part in. So the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and circumstance, uh, they entered the auditorium, probably should be translated theater, if you've been to Cesare, you've been to the theater, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city uh, at the command of Festus, Paul was then let in. So this is a big social slash political quasi-legal hearing. It's not technically a legal hearing. Once Paul's uh, appealed to Caesar, he's going. Nothing's going to change that. But since we've got a Jewish expert in town, uh, Festus wants to get more information to fill out the paperwork. So let's see what happens. So uh, you wouldn't really have this much pomp and circumstance at a formal legal hearing. So it's a hearing, but it's not really technically a legal hearing, if you follow what I mean there. But it was kind of the social event of that part of the year, apparently, and you got a lot of VIPs in and around Caesarea. So Festus said, King Agrippa, he's the most important guy in the room, so you always mention him first. That's not true. Who's the most important guy in the room, in the in the uh, setting here? It's Paul, but nobody recognizes that. So don't be too worried about human recognition and human awards and stuff, because sometimes they're given the right way, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes the people that the Monicas of the world that, you know, volunteer and do things without James having to beg you and plead with you. A lot of times that gets unnoticed. But if you're doing that for the right reasons, Jesus himself is going to say, that's good fruit, that's a good, good work, I like that. Monica, way to go. You're going to see that in the future uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. So we've got to be motivated for the right reasons, and it doesn't matter if people don't notice how great we are, because we're not worried about that. So King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here, you see this man... Paul, about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. He ought to be whacked. But I found that he'd committed nothing worthy of death. He hadn't committed any capital crimes. 
And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Uh, you, you got to at that point, you know, otherwise you're, it's on you. Uh, yet I have nothing definite about him to write to Nero. I need some, some more information. So this is kind of an informational hearing as well as a social uh, setting. Therefore, I brought him before you all. And of course, that'd be all y'all in Oklahoma. Brought him before all y'all, and especially before you specifically, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me to send a prisoner to Caesar and not to indicate any charges against him. Now, you got to realize, in the broader context in which Acts is being written and distributed, we've got a, a guy named Theophilus, who's apparently a Roman uh, a governor, governor, government official, who's a believer, who's needing discipleship training and how to deal with the charges that Christians are dangerous to the Roman government. And, uh, you know, uh, public enemy number one would have been Paul before and after his execution. And we've got historical record. When all the Romans check Paul out in the book of Acts, they find him innocent of all these charges. He's not a dangerous person. And hopefully, uh, that's what people would say about us. They may have weird beliefs, but they're not dangerous. <laughs> you know, They may be crazy, but they're not dangerous. Right? All right, let's close like this. We're looking at wisdom from the word about waiting. Paul's been waiting, and he's going to wait some more. And once he gets to Rome, he's going to wait for two years, and nothing's going to happen, quote-unquote. Waiting, doing nothing. And I'm putting nothing in quotes, Nancy. Because you're always doing something, right? And you're always somewhere. Is a major part of life under the sun. Just in passing here, between governor one, governor two, we had a two-year wait where Paul's just sitting there and looks like God's doing nothing. When you read the Joseph saga in Genesis 37 through 50, after Joseph interprets the cupbearer's dream, and he goes back to the Pharaoh, the cupbearer, it says, and two years later, just boom, like nothing happened. The cupbearer said, hey, if this comes true, I'm going to tell the Pharaoh how great you are. People forget. A lot of times, as Americans, we want instant, quick relief to every problem based on our schedule, based on our framework. And if it doesn't happen, we doubt, pout, drop out. Not a good way to do. Waiting, doing nothing, quote unquote, you're always doing something, is a major part of life under the sun. That's one reason heaven's going to be great. You, when, if you get sick in heaven, you go straight to the doctor. You don't have to see the, you don't have to go through any paperwork or anything. No Obamacare, nothing. You're not going to get sick. We're going to eliminate the middleman. When you eliminate illness, you don't need any medical people anymore. But in the meanwhile, I want to go to the best medical people I can afford. You know, if you like your doctor, you get to keep your doctor, right? So that's good. Uh, divine viewpoint believers can and should refuse to be constantly frustrated about the fact we got to wait around a lot in the world, you know? I mean, I'm such a pig. I sit at that intersection at uh, Elk in 81 near Burger King, coming to church and going home from church every day, sometimes multiple times every day. And, you know, once I got my phone, I started putting it on the stopwatch, and it's like 27 seconds. But that I used to hate that. I used to hate to sit there for 27 seconds. I was wasting all this valuable time. And then I timed it and said, that's only 27 seconds. That's nothing. You know, uh, and it, which and I can prove that. You know, if you wait there and don't look at your watch, it seems like forever. If you wait there and try to text something, you know, trust me, somebody's beeping at you because you can't even get one word typed and somebody's beeping. Can you text while you're standing still? Good. Okay. I don't want to con- confess any felonies up here <laughs> if I can avoid it. Right. Uh, but let me say a couple things real quickly as we finish. 
Uh, how was the Apostle Paul able to be beat up but remain upbeat? How was he pursued by problems and delays but remain patient? Well, I think he waited God's way. You know, uh, this isn't a lazy passivity. You don't sit around and say, I'm going to work for a year and then go to college, which I think is a great plan. I wish most, I wish more high school seniors would work a year or go in the military for a couple of years and then go to college because so many of them go from high school to college. They're not ready to concentrate. They just blow a hole in their GPA and then later they want to be a doctor and it's too late or whatever. I want to be a, uh, a stock contractor. Really? I wasn't sure what it was, but I knew James was wrong when he said what he said. But, uh, yeah. Uh, in a nutshell, patience, waiting God's way comes by resting in God's providence. Okay. Now let me define it positively and negatively. Waiting God's way for Carol Wanzer, for Ron Miller, for uh, Olga Pollitt, for Brad McCoy is resting in the reality. It's okay if God. It's okay with quotes. If God directs things to happen differently and or in a different time sequence, then I would prefer. Okay. This goes back to the most important lesson of theology. There's only one God, and you're not him. You're not the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. Now, the flip side of that, Mike, that's the positive statement. The flip side of that is waiting God's way is refusing to doubt, pout, and drop out if God directs things to happen differently on a different time sequence than I would prefer. You're just never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, so you've got to trust and obey. That means when you're waiting for a job, David, or uh, Daryl, or everybody else is wanting a new job because they, you know, their jobs are going away, or even if you're stopping at that 27-second uh, stoplight, you know, which is very distracting with my day. I want to be very efficient. I don't want to waste any time. But here's the thing, and I'll close with this. God's providence is at work all the time, all day long, even in the midst of your worst circumstances, whether we rest in him and rest in it or not. But resting in the fact God is at work, even in my crazy, mixed-up, inexplicable circumstances, resting in that allows me to live life like I'm going with the current as opposed to going against the current. You ever try to, I know Jack's a big canoeist, canoe guy and, and a kayak guy, and in the Boy Scouts, I remember one time, all week long, I was in charge of taking canoe from the boathouse down to where we were camping. What I didn't know was the prevailing wind was in that direction. So I did that for seven days. It was so easy, fun, no problem. That at the end of the week, they said, okay, boys, who wants to volunteer to take all the canoes back to the boathouse? I went, man, it's been so easy, so fun. I'd do that. I couldn't make a fire, so I had to do stuff like paddle a canoe. Guess what? Getting that first canoe, it took like five times longer, and I felt like my arms were dropping off going into the prevailing wind, you know? You can live your life like this, where he's going down the current. Now, there's still rocks to avoid, and some rocks you're going to hit, and Jack, uh, the experienced uh, kayaker, has probably flipped a few times. Uh, uh, I think both James and John Strzeski told hilarious stories about times you took them kayaking, which is one reason I'm not going kayaking with you, because they flipped over, which I guess happens to everybody. But here's the thing. So you can rest in God and go down the current of life, or you can say, no, nah, i got enough information to second guess, or this isn't fair, and I don't like it, and God's goofed or made a mistake. And it's like you're going up the current. Uh, but here's the thing. That's not a very good picture. You really need to go like this. One reason 
you need a good church family is so they can support you and help you wait God's way when the big things hit. You don't have to do it just by yourself. You can do it with others that will help you. Now, that's another thing I'm never going to do in my life because I'm getting old and my bones uh, break too easily. But these guys actually look like they're enjoying it, okay? Here's the dad in the back who's wisely concerned, but I presume they wouldn't be posting this on the Internet. And look at this chick. I mean, (laughs) that's nothing but good. And I don't look forward to waiting. I don't look forward to trials and temptations. But when you actually train yourself to rest in God's providence, you can actually enjoy the ride. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us by your grace to see through the eyes of faith your hand uh, in the, all the circumstances of our lives. Let that not be an excuse for passivity or inactivity on our part, but uh, help us just to train ourselves by your grace when we can't uh, see your hand to trust your heart and to rest in you and uh, that you'd be glorified not in uh, just what we do, but sometimes what we don't do or what we can't do is we're in a holding pattern that you've uh, appointed for us in, in many areas. I know people are waiting for new jobs and they're waiting for uh, our high school seniors. I know excited about getting out of high school and starting life. And they're going to find out it's maybe tougher than they thought. But uh, help us to realize that these holding patterns that seem inexplicable to us are something you've woven into the fabric, the tapestry of our life story, our journey, and we can rest in that and continue to trust and obey you through the waiting periods of the difficult times like that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.